we've been kind of working our way through this psalm for a few weeks, and I'm going to try to wrap it up tonight. Um, but we've referenced the fact or, or acknowledged the fact this is a Christological psalm, which means it's a psalm that ultimately is about Christ. Uh, the historical context of it was uh, it was written and sung at the time when uh, the new king came to power. The new king came to the throne. And it was a reminder that he wasn't just simply the king of Israel. This is the person that God had put in place to be his representative over his people. And not just over his people, but really over all the nations of the earth. We remember that when David was king, that he extended Israel's boundaries to the extent that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and through the Genesis narratives. Uh, going all the way up to the Euphrates River, down to the brook of Egypt, all the way into the Transjordan to the Mediterranean Sea. And so he and Solomon, as they rule and reign, they're ruling over this great territory. And because they ruled so much territory, it had brought foreigners, foreign nations, under their rule. And so whenever a new king came to power, it was always kind of an opportunity for foreign nations to say, well, this is our chance, right? As a new king, he's got concerns at home. He's got to make sure that uh, there's no rivals to the throne trying to assassinate him. There's there's no one trying to create a problem for him. His army is not going to rebel against him. So it's an opportune time for foreign nations to rebel against their conquered uh, rulers and to use that as a way to kind of break away. And Psalm 2 warns those nations not to do that, right? The first three verses, uh, it, we see the, the rebelliousness of the nations. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their accords from us. And we see there that rebelliousness of these nations. As we think about how this applies to Christ, we know that Christ is, is, is king, that the, God has given his kingdom uh, to Jesus to be the king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And so all that belongs to God belongs to Christ. And Christ rules and reigns with authority, not just over his people, but over all the nations. And so as, as, as Christ is, is after the resurrection and his ascension is, is claiming his kingdom and exercising his rule over his kingdom, the nations are raging against that. And so we kind of saw the last time we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the nations are rebelling against the authority of God, rebelling against the authority of Christ. We talked about different ways that manifests itself, right? What can we do to disregard the word of the Lord? What can we do to disobey and to break the commands that God has? But it's all an exercise in futility. Right, and that's where we're going to pick up tonight in verse four. I kind of, I kind of started in the middle and then worked my way back, and now we're going to kind of move, move forward more quickly through this. But in verse four, what is God's response to the nation's rebellion? It says in verse four, "He who sits in the heavens laughs; the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill.' The laughing there is not like the chuckling of, oh, you know." How funny that is. This is a laughing that is, is uh, a mocking, it is a scornful laugh. It is a laugh of contempt. God's response here betrays the absurdity and the irrationality and the futility of the nations. In other words, the nations are out of their minds in how they are responding to the Lord. The Lord is creator. The Lord reigns. He has put his king over them to rule over them, and yet they want to break away from that. They want to break away from the authority of Israel's king. They want to break away from the authority of God himself. And so the Lord is incredulous. He's not surprised. He's not confounded by what they're doing. But it's, it's, it's just, it's insane. It's unbelievable. 
why they would want to unhinge themselves or unyoke themselves from the Lord and against his anointed. And so he he mentions there in verse 5 that the response to their rebelliousness is his wrath and his fury, right? He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the Lord here is warning the nations about their rebellion. That if they persist in their rebellion, he is going to exercise his wrath. He will terrify them with his fury. Now, how does he warn them? What is the warning? It's a reminder that he has set his king on his holy hill. He has set his king on Zion. In other words, the king is God's representative. The king is God's agent. He is the one who rules on God's behalf. He is the one who rules in God's place for God, the the incarnation, if you will, of God's authority. And so, if they use this new king's installation to power as inspiration for rebellion, God is going to use this new king to administer terrifying judgment. If they choose to break away, the response in the historical context is for the Israelite king to lead his army against them. And God will give them victory. God will will cause them to prevail and they will bring total destruction upon those nations. Because the king is the Lord's king, because the Lord has put him into this place, he cannot fail. And so if the nations are going to rebel against the Lord, if they're going to rage and seek to unhitch themselves from the Lord, they are in serious danger. Now, in verses 7 through 9, we see that the king now speaks, okay, in verse 7. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break, and then this is God speaking again to his king, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the king here is confirming that he is the properly anointed and properly installed king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. I have that special relationship with the Lord. The Lord has put me in this place. I am his king. He has begotten me. He's put me in this, this position, in this situation. And so he reads the decree. This decree declares that he is God's son. Again, that word son, in a historical context, we're not talking about Christ now, we're talking about the Israelite king. The son there expressed a special relationship the king had with the Lord. It was in a figurative sense. So the king is declaring he is God's son. God has put him on the throne. Therefore, he is God's proper and legitimate representative. He does God's will. He acts on God's behalf. And so if the nations are going to rage, this is a futile thing, right? It's it's an irresponsible thing. It's an irrational thing. He continues with the decree in verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, the Lord urges the king to ask the nations of the earth to be his heritage or his inheritance. In other words, it's as if God is asking the king or saying to the king, ask of me, what is it that you want? Ask of me of the nations. Ask of me of the world, and I will give you all the nations of the world. I will bring them all under your rule. You will rule not just over my people, but you will rule over all of my creation. You will rule over all the peoples that I have created. So what God is promising here is to bring all nations together under the king's rule. The king must simply ask God, and God will honor that request. The king of Israel is not just God's anointed for Israel, but he's God's anointed for all the nations, for all the peoples. Though the nations wish to rebel and be autonomous, 
they really belong to God. They really ought to fall under the authority of God's king. So to rebel against the king is really to rebel against God himself, and that is an insane thing to do. The decree also states the consequence for failing to submit to Israel's king. In verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, what the Lord says to the king here is he is promising to carry out the judgment that he warned them of in verse 5. Right? Remember verse 5? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In other words, if you persist in this way, I'm going to bring judgment upon you and my king will do it. And he uses a, a really neat image. And we could, it's one that we, we can even imagine, right? We don't have to be living 3,000 years ago. Imagine a clay pot and then taking an iron rod, like a crowbar or something, and in striking that clay pot, you can imagine just how that clay pot will burst into a billion pieces. It'll shatter the pieces of everywhere. Total destruction. There'll be nothing left of that iron, of that clay pot. And so it's a great image, a profound image for the kind of destruction that God will bring upon peoples in his fury because of their rebelliousness. Again, God's response is based upon the people's rebelliousness, the people's sin. And so because that is a very profound image, because the threat of judgment is so severe, the psalm ends with a warning in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, there's a call to action. Okay? The nations are rebelling, which they should not do. God has installed his king. He is king over all the nations, over all the peoples. God has promised that to him. The threat, the warning of judgment is coming if they persist in their rebelliousness. What should they do? What should the nations do? They should be wise. And how should they be wise? They should serve the Lord with fear. They should rejoice with trembling. In other words, they are to serve God. They are to worship. The word serve and worship are very closely related there in, in the Hebrew language. It's the same word, but oftentimes the word for serve often means worship. Right? They're to worship the Lord. They're to reject their idols. They're to submit themselves to God. They're to submit themselves to His Son. That phrase in verse 12, kiss the Son. The word kiss there is a sign of submission. It's a way of acknowledging one who is of greater authority. They're to kiss the Son. They're to submit themselves to the Son. So, in this, he warns them again, right? Verse 10, be, 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 be wise, be warned. Failing to bow their knee to Yahweh, failing to submit to his king that he has installed, will bring the heat of his wrath. But it also promises a blessing in verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, gladly and willingly submitting to the king's rule will cause them to benefit from the king's rule. In other words, if they place themselves under this king who is to be righteous and good and wise and gracious, they will benefit from that. They'll receive the blessing that God has promised to his people. That blessing extends even to them, though they are the nations outside of the covenant. So the blessings of God through the king are not just for Israel, but they're for all nations who cease their rebellion and submit to the king. All right, again, we said this is a Christological psalm. So what is, the, what is the application here to Christ? We can first say that rejection of Christ as king of kings is the height of human rebellion. 
Rejection of Christ is the most egregious form of rebellion against the Lord. Because why? God has made his son to be the king of kings. God has given his son a kingdom. Jesus died on the cross and was raised again from the dead. And what was his inheritance? It was the kingship. It was the kingdom. God has given to his son the kingdom and dominion and power and authority. And men, we've been going through the um, book of Daniel on Tuesday nights. And the last part of that book is talking about the dominion of Christ, the dominion of the king, right? What God is giving to his Messiah, that his rule and reign is to extend over all the earth and to all, all the peoples. And so Christ is king. And to reject Christ as king is the height of human rebellion. Because to reject Christ is to reject God. You know, we live in an age that is religious, very religious, but it's not Christian, right? People are looking for religion in all different kinds of places. They're looking at, in themselves, they're looking into nature, they're looking into philosophy, they're looking into other world religions. But you mention the name of Jesus as being the one whom God has sent for our salvation, and it's like, no, that's not it. People are, 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 are willing to be religious in every way possible except to bow their knee to Christ. And so the nations, by rejecting Christ, are raging against the Lord himself. They've been raging since the fall. They will continue to rage. They're raging, it seems, even more vehemently in our own day. We talked about uh, a few weeks ago about how various ways that raging occurs. But suffice it to say here that any attempt to affirm Yahweh's right to rule over his creation through the agency of his Son provokes a virulent rage against the Lord and against his anointed. People just don't want Christ. I see a lot of things today when people try to stand up to affirm God's word or to affirm the righteousness of God, to affirm the gospel, and there's just a vitriolic response to it. That's an example of the nation's raging. And that rebellion is foolish, foolishness. It will fail. Christ's kingship is sure, his authority is total. We see also what God's response is to this. To those who reject Christ as his king, it says that God laughs. God acknowledges the absurdity and the irrationality and the futility of their persistent rebellion. I mean, we've so contorted the truth to make it unrecognizable, right? And it's like the very simple things, the very simple truths that people are unwilling to acknowledge, right? That a man is a man and a woman is a woman, for example. They're willing to contort that and distort that, and it's as if God is laughing. God is mocking that irrationality. God is mocking the futility of what they are promoting as truth. And so God responds in the only way that he can, which is to promise his wrath. Right? So when we think about the gospel, part of the gospel message is a warning. Yes, it is a message of grace. It is a message of God's love. It's a message of forgiveness of sins. But it's also a warning of what will happen if you don't turn to Christ. Right? That God's wrath is coming. That he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That, that, that quotation from uh, verse 9 appears in the book of Revelation as an example of what the coming king, the coming Christ, will do. So, we need to remember that God's king is not up for election, right? That polity in the kingdom of God is not a democracy. We don't get to choose who rules over us. God chooses and installs his king, period. 
Christ is king and he will bring all the nations under his authority, whether those nations are willing or unwilling. And for those who are unwilling to submit to him, he will administer his wrath. Notice also that in verse 8, God has promised the nations to King Jesus. The glorious promise of the gospel is that some from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language will be represented around the throne of Christ in his kingdom. Why is that? Because God promised that to Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead and God gave to him this kingdom, he promised him that he would give him all the nations of the world. We were singing there from the song earlier. Um, Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. That is what we see represented here in Psalm 2. We see that the world also faces a choice. And that choice is that we are to either act wisely and to submit ourselves to Christ, to the Son, to kiss the Son, or we would be... um, objects of God's anger that we would perish in the way as it says in verse 12 so if Christ is king and he is we are to respond in wisdom we are to be wise what does that wisdom look like the fear of the Lord is expressed in serving the Lord and submitting to Christ in the gospel we call people to kiss the son to repent of their sins, to stop their rebellion, to trust in Christ, to submit to him as Lord and King. And those who do so are infinitely blessed. I was thinking, I couldn't do all the cross-references, I didn't have enough time. But thinking about Paul's letters and what, how he says how we are blessed as God's people in the gospel. We've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have an inheritance far beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. We have an infinite, we are infinitely blessed in Christ. And so there is even greater motivation, greater reason to submit ourselves to him. But parallel with that promise of blessing is the warning. Failure to submit to King Jesus, to reject his gospel, to not submit to him, will bring the heat of his wrath on the last day. So Psalm 2 is a very prom- I love the psalm. It's a very promising and hopeful psalm, a, a promise and a hope of, of the reign of Christ, the full the full reality of Christ's reign, both now as he rules and reigns over the church, as the reign, the kingdom of Christ is being pushed out into all the nations of the world, but also the promise of what will be ultimately when the last day comes. And as we are ambassadors for the king, we go into the world and we tell them of this promise, that there is hope, that there is blessing for those who will bow their knee to Jesus. But if not, the wrath of God is coming. We would pray for them to turn and be blessed and take refuge in the Lord. What a great psalm. Let me just pray and ask God to uh, fulfill his word in our lives and in our world. Lord, we do thank you for the truth of Psalm 2, this majestic psalm, this promising psalm of who Christ is and what you have promised to him, the promise of his reign, the promise of his kingdom, the future victory of it, Lord. We know that even though we have not yet reached that point of consummation, that these words are still true because of his death and resurrection from the dead. That Christ is ruling and reigning even now. That he sits at the right hand of the Father. And among the many things he does for us as his people, he is also exercising his rule over the world. And as his ambassadors, we are pressing out against the world 
we are expanding the kingdom, we are pressing the kingdom into the various nations, the, the peoples, tribes, and tongues of, of people that need to hear the gospel, that, that truly belong to Christ, some that will be saved. And so I pray, Lord, even in, in this, as we would pray with the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, we would also pray, Lord, help us to be faithful ambassadors. Help us to be faithful heralds of the gospel. Help us to go with this message of good news so that those who have not yet repented their sins, those who are still in their rebelliousness and raging, would, would come to themselves, would cease to be irrational, would cease their futility, would have a clear mind, that they would bow their knee to Jesus, that they would kiss the Son, and so be saved. And they would experience the incredible blessings that you've promised to us in the gospel. Lord, help us to be ambassadors to that. We pray, Lord, for those of people in our own lives. I know every week we mention various people, and just I know every family here is touched by friends and loved ones that we've been praying for, for their salvation. Lord, we would pray that you might break the hardness of their hearts, that you would give them wisdom to see their raging and their rebelliousness against you. Lord, that you would open up their heart and bring them to lucidity of mind to be able to hear the gospel and to respond to it in faith. Lord, this is a work that only you can do. We're messengers, Lord. We're only equipped to go and take the message, but you are the one who who unlocks the hard heart, Father. You're the one who exchanges the heart of stone for the heart of flesh. And so I pray, Lord, even as we may be encouraged by the ultimate victory of God and knowing that our status as your people is secure, that you would help to bring those, Lord, that we know and love to the place of repentance. You would spare them of being dashed with the iron rod so that they might experience the blessing by taking refuge in you. Oh God, we pray that you would fulfill this, fulfill your word, fulfill it in us, fulfill it in our church, through our ministry, fulfill it in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.